you remember back in the beginning, you filled out a form. It was like the, the questionnaire, um, interview questionnaire, I think it was called. And there's all these questions, emergency contact person and this and that. And then and there's one particular question that's, is there anything that um, might keep you from participating fully in the, in the retreat? And, uh, you know, we're trying to get at this. Anybody need any extra assistance, etc.? <clears throat> and so we actually read these, you know. We actually <laughs> read them. And so um, I was reading one, and down to that question, is there anything that would, you know, uh, interfere with your fully participating in this retreat? And I read it, and erectile dysfunction. Okay, now think about that. Well, not too much. So I'm thinking, well, okay, it's a condition. Now, how does it affect our practice here? And and then I thought, well, what kind of practice might they be doing? So I I got interested. And so I, I read more carefully this person's sheet. And then I realized I'd misread the word. It was electile dysfunction. So, I... I think we're all suffering from a little electile dysfunction. And we might not agree about the candidates, but we can agree it's been quite a ride. So So if you can get that out of your mind now, I'll start the talk. (laughs) Don't think about that. Stop it. So over the last few evenings, we explored some very important territory. Jonathan began by exploring the the challenging energies, these natural energies that are driven by our survival instincts. Tara continued that theme, explored how to utilize the, the acronym RAIN and the nuances of that, and, and explored even... Uh, other aspects of how these energies obscure our evolutionary potential. And last night, Larry uh, uh, took us on a journey through the paradoxes. Paradoxes is this practice, pra- paradoxes of life. And he touched on the non-awakening factors, so-called. And so tonight... I'm going to touch on the awakening factors. So, a common thread that you've heard over and over in this retreat is that you start where you are. And it doesn't matter where you are. There's no preferred where you are. You know, whatever the weather is, fear, shame, guilt, physical pain, it doesn't matter. And, and you're cultivating the intention is to be with, be with whatever arises with a kind, kindly, mindful equanimity. Whatever the experience is. That's the basic deal here in this practice. And there's a, there's a, a, a phrase that it's, that it's worth kind of remembering and, and repeating in the spirit of this. And that's whatever arises, may it serve to awaken me. Whatever arises, may it serve to awaken me. You know, and sometimes what arises, 90% of you doesn't want to have anything to do with it. and You just want it to go away. And the other 10%, there, there is some intention to be with it. But maybe the conditions at that time are too strenuous for your nervous system. 
And the prudent, compassionate thing to do is to move your attention away. Defer until later. A little self-compassion. You'll have another chance. Whatever is important or recurring, we get an opportunity to work with it over and over. And I think we've all been alive long enough to know that many of our most important learnings have been through difficulties. Uh, This poem by Roshani, and many of you have heard it. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of which depth emerges strength. There's a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctified into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. To the place inside that is unbreakable and whole. And Martin Luther King says, the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy. In some sense, you're all on a hero's journey. And at various times in your life, you're called to face and navigate very challenging situations. And nobody's exempt from this. There are moments of great challenge in each of our lives. A little story. I, I, remember, I remember being at the Forest Refuge and uh, I was there for this was a, I was there for a couple months. And I, I was there for about a month and then I started having a toothache. <clears throat> and so I knew that I was going to need some help. So I went. They arranged to, that I could go to a dentist in Barrie, uh, Massachusetts. So I went to the dentist, and he was going to have to extract the tooth. And then it got complicated. The tooth broke off inside. Then he had to dig it out. And he's working away, and I could see he's sweating. He hadn't planned on this. Sewed it all up. So I go back. I go back to my room in the forest refuge. And I didn't get a prescription for painkillers. It was still Novocaine, but that started to wear off. And so I'm lying there, and I knew, well, sleep is probably going to be out of the question. You know? And I'm feeling a little sorry for myself. Ah, oh, this retreat, I put so much time putting, getting this all together, and now who knows what's going to happen, and you know, the infection, and blah, 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 what could happen. So um, I was working my practice, recalling the mind, looking at the pain, looking at the spaces between the spikes of pain, etc., working with it that way. And I thought as the, as the night went on that, okay, here I am suffering some phys- temporary physical pain. And I decided I would think of everybody that I knew and explore what their suffering was. Did they all have suffering? And every person that I recalled was suffering in one form or another. They either had physical issues or they had relationship issues or they had issues with their children or they had issues with their parents or they had financial issues and issues around the job. I couldn't find one person that I knew, not one, of everybody that I knew well enough to conjure up. And I did it for hours because what was I going to do? Kind of wallow in my own self-pity. So 
I just looked at this. None of us are exempt. It's the nature of being born. Now, recently I became a grandfather for the first time. And uh, my granddaughter, she lives in California with my son and his wife. So I traveled out there. And this was like a new, you know, a new experience. She's only four months old now. So this was uh, several months ago. And I was a little unprepared for the effect, you know. What would it be like when I had this little being in my arms, you know? And it was surprising, the, the kind of protective instincts that were like, whoa, right there, you know. It was almost like I wanted to give a lecture to my son and his wife, like, you better take care of this baby, you know. <laughs> but I'm holding her. And as Larry talked last night about the bitter sweetness of this life, And I'm looking at her little sweet face and thinking, oh my gosh, what does she have to endure? Born into this life, you know. Is she going to have the capacity to deal with what's thrown at her? So it was this, this, this bittersweet experience with this, with this little being. It was heightened because it was my granddaughter for some reason. I have this reaction a lot when I see babies. You know, there's kind of like, wow, what a miracle. And oh my gosh, what, what are, you know, what are they going to be having to work with? You know, like all of us, all of us seasoned humans who've been here for a while. So all of us have been wounded. There's no exceptions. And we're all on a kind of specific hero's journey where we, where we meet our wounds in one, one way or another. And if we're lucky, we stumble across or gravitate to, to situations or practices that can help us heal. You know, my own history probably is not dissimilar to some of yours. My, my, my dad uh, um, was in World War II, and I mentioned him before. I have a lot of stories about him. And he was in combat for almost 700 days with the Fifth Army through Africa and then up through Italy. And so my relatives would always remark to me, and I wasn't born until after the war, like, oh, you should have known your dad before the war. Well, he was quite shattered in a lot of ways uh, when he came back. You know, back then they didn't call it PTSD. They didn't call it anything. There was a whole generation of people who were back trying to act normal in the 50s. So that was his story. And prior to that, his father died when he was two. There were an immigrant family. Uh, his, His father was from Ireland. His mother... We have, we're not sure exactly her origin. Uh, four of the 11 children died in, uh, of his brothers and sister died in childhood. None of them had an education past grade school. They all worked as soon as they could peddle newspapers or get out on the street. So it was not an easy upbringing. You add the war on there, and this, this is my father. My mother grew up in a, uh, intact family, at least for the first 10 years, and her mother died. She was the only female, three brothers. Her father pulls her out and makes her the maidservant, pulls her out of school at age 10 to cook, clean, take care of her brothers who would go on to high school, etc. Well, she showed him. She got pregnant when she was 16. It was a, it was a horrible mess. She was traumatized. The relationship didn't work. She's kind of out on the street in the 1930s with a baby. So I get born into this family that there's a high level of PTSD. That's the air you breathe. There was fear. There was um, uh, um, a kind of uh, cynicism about everyone trying to take advantage of you. There was scarcity. 
or fear that we never have enough. And it was palpable. You know. So in that situation, some of psychotherapists would say, well, the normal attachment isn't going to happen. It's called attachment avoidant. I, to survive, I go inside. I learn to kind of nurture myself inside. And lucky for me, I had some natural abilities uh, in terms of interacting with kids in the neighborhood. The whole neighborhood was filled with kids in the late 40s and early 50s. And so I had a lot of friends. I didn't have intimacy, but I had a lot of friends, and I was able to do that, and I've always been skilled at that during my life. So it's no wonder that I took to meditation when it became available to me. It was very safe inside. It was very familiar, very comfortable. You know. But as I practiced and began exploring, some discoveries were made, also through thera- therapeutic work, etc., My challenges became clear. You know, I had this de- desire for connection. I'm a human. We're herd animals. We want to connect. We want to have intimacy. But there was a shakiness and a fear. Whenever there would be a certain amount of vulnerability, like one might expect in a household that was intact, where you have that bonding, whenever I'd move towards that in a relationship, I'd back up. I'd turtle in. I'd go where it's safe. And so relationships were a challenge. But if I wanted intimacy, I had to find a way to begin to bridge this. And the practice was a help. Learning my story was a help in, in, in therapy. Now learning the details of that. But the practice became a help. Kind of moving into vulnerability, which then created a, bubbles of fear and kind of uncomfortableness, if I could be aware of it, I could say, okay, this is the conditioning. That was then. This is now. Do I have the courage and strength to hang out here feeling vulnerable but a little shaky and stay in this space with this person? And so it's a process. It's not a completed process. But the old dog can learn new tricks. And so it's happening. The trajectory is in the right direction. But I'm sure the day that they throw the dirt over me, that on some level I'll still be working on it. I'll still have to be awake to it. Okay, oh, look, you're retreating. Here's a possibility for intimacy, and you're retreating. And mindfulness can let me know that. And so if the conditions are right that day and my nervous system is strong enough, I can like, all right, I'm going to hang out here. I'm just going to hang out here because I've had enough of the goodies of intimacy that it's, it's, it's well worth my time and effort. So we start where we are. And as your good fortune would have it, that wherever you are, the road with this practice leads to freedom. This is what the Buddha taught. And along with exploring ways on how to work with the, these shadow energies that come up, the fear Maybe the greed, the wanting, the anger, whatever it might be, the delusion. He, the Buddha was frequently and always encouraging his students to, look, I want you to spend some time and rediscover, uncover, explore, and enhance those natural energies, those seeds of awakening that are in all of you. No one is without them. They are there. There are seeds to our awakening and 
seeds to more social harmony. They're the better angels of our nature. In Buddhism, they're called the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening or the seven limbs of awakening. But they're ordinary capacities. You don't have to create them. But they, when enhanced and cultivated, they can be extraordinary vehicles of transformation. So, Larry mentioned them last night. They are mindfulness, energy, investigation, or differentiation. I'll talk about that a little bit. Joy, or rapture, tranquility, concentration, which I like to call samadhi, and equanimity. And there's sometimes you, you see them referred to as the treasures within or inner wealth. And this from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandonment of things that harm so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment, the abandonment of things that harm. Bhikkhus, the seven factors of enlightenment when developed and cultivated are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. That's a big statement. The complete destruction of suffering. So these, these factors are somewhat progressive in nature. And they balance each other. Three of, the factors of our, uh, three of these factors are enlivening factors. They're activating, energetic factors. Investigation, energy, and joy, they've got kind of more juice to them. All right? And three are calming, quieting factors. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And the remaining factor is our trusted friend, mindfulness. Okay? And all the factors are supported by mindfulness. And together they kind of they have a nonlinear, this exquisite dance that they that they spin together, reinforcing one another as they grow in strength. But in the most rudimentary sense, you understand these factors already. You've been kind of cultivating them. They're the essence of a meditative state, alert and calm. You know, when we've got calm and we don't have the alertness, we kind of get spacey. When we've got the alertness without the calm, we can get a little wired up. And so it's a natural state, and we're enhancing it here through these practices so it becomes a more and more of a default resting place for our, for our organism, our nervous system. And so... Mindfulness kind of gets the ball rolling. And it marvels, it kind of marvels its way through the entire process of awakening, through all these factors. It's like the way fat marbles itself through expensive meat. You know? I don't want to gross you out if you're a vegetarian. I've been one for 45 years myself. But I remember working in a restaurant as a kid and uh, as a short order cook in a dishwasher and being schooled by this irascible old chef. He'd point out to me, and he was teaching me things, you know, that this, the fat is marbled through the most expensive meat. The taste of your meat gives taste. And in a like manner, in a spiritual practice, mindfulness is marbled through all the other factors of awakening. It gets the wheel of liberation moving. And its power is its ability to, to recompose, regather the human heart-mind to bring it out of whatever scatteredness or fragmentation it's been in. 
and to guide it back to some sense of wholeness. You've all experienced what we call papancha on this retreat. You know, that, the Pali word papancha is like the opposite of mindfulness. It's the ability of this human mind to, to spread out and proliferate in all directions, to run and jump like an over-caffeinated squirrel. It gets all tangled and complicated. It solidifies things. It reifies things. It elaborates on everything. And above all, it loves to obsess. You know? That's papancha. You know, it's like you're on a bullet train of thought. You're just whizzing along at 200 miles an hour. You're not stopping at any of the stations. You're moving from one thing to the next. One little event, you know, can work itself into this tragedy that rivals Macbeth or something, you know. Papancha creates disasters, you know, that, that then we inhabit and live in and suffer with. And mindfulness is the opposite of this. It's the, it's the capacity of breaking these reactive patterns, breaking out of identification with the power of mindfulness. So the challenging energies Jonathan talked about, the wanting, the aversion, the restlessness, the worry, the sloth, the doubt, I mean, those are the forces of the mind that, that, that obscure you from seeing what's true from penetrating into the nature of nature. It obscures you from seeing what's beneficial for yourself and for those around you. And so these factors are counterbalancing. The seven factors of awakening are forces that that allow us to see more clearly what's true and what's beneficial for us and everyone around us. And so when you, when you drift off, as we all do when we're practicing, it's mindfulness that you're cultivating that kind of gently grabs you, wakes you. It's like some of the new fancy stuff in cars where you drift out of your lane, you know. It'll beep or something and bring you back in. It's mindfulness. It's kind of keeping us in our lane a little bit. So let's explore the second factor of awakening. This one's an interesting one. They're all interesting. Investigation. As mindfulness strengthens, okay, you're more directly present for what's happening. It's very simple. You're sitting there in your chair on a cushion. You feel your buttocks, the pressure on it, etc. You feel your feet on the floor. You hear these words. There's a kind of color, form, and light are being received by your retina. You know. and, uh, and as you begin to spend a little more time in the present, you begin to see things a little more clearly. Your perspective gets refined, your view, your understanding. And it's inclining toward greater wisdom greater understanding. It's, to, it's just that simple. Dhamma-vikaya is the Pali word for investigation, but it also means to differentiate. Differentiate, okay? To discern, to investigate, to, to discern what is beneficial and what is not. What leads to harmony and what leads away from harmony, both internally and externally. You begin to see the difference between being caught and identified and what it's like not to be caught and identified. You know, one person in a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a meeting with them was, was describing this process, this cycle that they went through around the giving of the technology. The person had forgot the envelope and people were lined up and it's, oh my gosh, Everybody else followed directions. I didn't follow directions again. I can't, even, I can't even get this right, you know. And so there was this 
to the person's amazement, this flush of energy. Like, oh my, it's just a little thing. I didn't pick up the end. You know, it's like this, this flush of kind of shame, guilt. But the mindfulness was there. That identification didn't last very long. The mindfulness was there. Oh, look at this. Oh my gosh. It's that old stuff again. You know, it's that old conditioning. Here I am trying to do it all right and I didn't get it right and, you know. So there was some, actually some humor in it. You know, just, oh, the amazement of that this can happen over virtually nothing. They watched it. It dissipated rather quickly. There was no grasping or pushing away. Done. Okay. So on some level, we can't really choose whether we get caught up in things. But when we're awake, then we have some choices. Sometimes we just, we're identified, we get flushed over. uh, But our mindfulness will allow us, okay? And we can make that differentiation. Do I want to keep riding with this? Or do I want to bring some of the tools of practice that I know to bear in this moment. Another way to maybe under to understand the the importance and and the sensitivity of this this uh, differentiation or investigation is a very simple practice we can do on the fly. So let's do it. It's a very short reflection. Close your eyes. Go inside. And I want you to explore your attitude. Your attitude. Is there wanting in the mind? Leaning toward something? Or is there aversion in the mind? Oh, I wish this talk was over. It's just boring me to tears. You know? What's, you know, or is there a kind of balance? Come see, come saw. I'm awake, I'm here, I'm checking things out. So that attitude, you know, and can, can whatever we discover be held in a non-reactive awareness? It's not that it's bad that we're leaning towards something or wanting to get out to the snack table or whatever it might be or look to see if the election is over, you know. We're just humans. Can we hold that? with friendliness. Likewise with any aversion. Okay. Open your eyes. We can, we can as we go through the day, check our attitude. Just like, what? Am I, am I leaning, wanting? Is there the beginning of the, the claws starting to come out to grasp something? Or am I starting to push something away? Or am I kind of chilled? You know, it's giving us information. All right, the third factor of awakening, virya, energy. It's also been translated as effort, strength, courage, vigor, perseverance, and persistence. Wholehearted engagement. And I all say all of you have exhibited energy on this, on this retreat. Now, it, you know, it has its moments where it's kind of flagging and its moments where it's really crisp and alive. The Buddha says this.
one investigates and examines the state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. And one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. Tireless energy is aroused. It's like mindfulness has energy to it. Investigation, as we're differentiating, that has energy to it. It's like a two-way street. You need some energy to get going, but then there's the kind of brightening of the energy as we're involved in differentiation. The interest, curiosity of mindfulness, they're feeding each other. You know, in practice, we, we've had discussions in here about the continuous balanced energy. We're always encouraging continuity on this retreat. You know, and uh, so are we expecting perfect continuity? Of course not. But as we add the, the moments of mindfulness as we go through the day, we're building a power. You know, in, in one meeting, in a meeting I had today, I was, uh, uh, su- one person was surprised. They were dealing with some sleepiness, and they were going to go lay down and take their sixth nap or whatever since they've been here. And they decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and practice. And lo and behold, the energy came back. You know? Sometimes we are surprised that energy can beget energy. They kind of pulled themselves together. You know? There have been thousands of times when I've been, been tired and, and then when I've sat down to practice, somehow that intention you know, has brought the energy up, the interest, the curiosity. And other times, uh-uh. It just kind of get into this gooey haze. And for some moments, I can start to be mindful of sleepiness. <laughs> and then it just goes. You know? But I've also found that sometimes asking myself, like, when I'm, when I'm feeling, like, okay, where's the virya? Where is it? Where's the energy? And it's like, and, I, and it's there. Like, all these factors are there. Can we can we touch them, tickle them a little bit, and have them activate, right? So we endeavor to have some consistency in our practice. You know, if you want to boil water, and you go and you turn on the, you put the pot on the stove, and you turn on the burner for 30 seconds, and you, say, and you turn it off, and you come, back and you come back in 30 minutes and turn it on for 30 seconds again, well, where's that going to get you? the same thing in our practice. So we have the formal sitting practice. We have the encouragement for moments of mindfulness as we go through our day. And sometimes, I had a number of discussions with people about my age in in our meetings uh, about the preciousness of our time left. Boy, when I think about that, and how just about everything is in the rearview mirror, boy, that brings up the energy, you know? So reflection there can be really helpful. I mean, conditions are favorable now. We joke about that, but they might not be. This might be your last retreat. Another source of energy for me, personally, is to kind of reflect on awe. You know, it's like, whoa. Whoa the awe-inspiring nature of just being alive. It's undefinable, mysterious, unfathomable. We can't know it. We're on this little watery planet where this thing is spinning around at about 1,100 miles an hour, and it's going around these, this thing we call the sun at 70,000 miles an hour with these other things we call planets. And the whole group is cruising through the galaxy at a million miles an hour together. And... There's a couple billion of those in our Milky Way galaxy. This is like crazy, (laughs) you know. And then there are all these other galaxies, millions of them with billions of stars. That kind of, whoa, that kind of can excite 
at least me, excite the whole organism. A while back, a kind of mantra developed in me, and it came out of this kind of, this awe and mystery of all this, and it's kind of served me well, and so I'll share it. Maybe it's a little off target here, but... um, And I apply it a lot in my primary relationship and other close relationships. And I also applied it a lot during this political season, all the chaos and righteousness that goes on. And the mantra goes something like this. Or the first part of it has to do with, you know, I really don't know a whole lot, okay, about anything. I I never have a complete picture. I know a sliver of, of what's going on. And I have a, a, an opinion, I have lots of opinions that are formed out of limited information. Okay? My scope is not that broad, but I have the right to have opinions. We all do. Okay? The second part of this is coming to release the attachment of being right. So then the mantra kind of comes together like this. And my partner loves it when I can sit in this space. I really don't know, and the mantra is, I really don't know so much, and I'm not attached to being right. And when I can say that, and when I can truly feel it, if there's not some other agenda cranking in the background, you know, and in that moment, if I don't have that agitated desire for somebody to listen to me or believe what I say or have my point of view, it's really freeing. I'm then open to receive new information. And the others around me can relax and feel a little bit safe from my righteousness. I don't know very much, and I'm not attached to being right. It's kind of a a burden drop. It's a little tip of the hat to the mystery of all this. But of course we have to make important decisions that affect our lives, seriously affect our lives and the lives of other people. And we have to take stands. And we do our best but we do it from a place of never really knowing all the conditions. We're making our best guess. So this practice continues. You keep bringing yourself back. You're applying a steady, appropriate, relaxed energy. You're not striving, but there's enough to connect with your experience. And some of you, might have begun to notice that after a while, there are moments where you actually start to feel some pleasant sensations. And that's the next factor of awakening, piti, or joy, or rapture. And it can be as subtle as this soft kind of inner smile, just a little lightning, or it can be very powerful can be a real body rush. All kinds of things are possible. But no matter how it manifests, it signals that the mind and heart are becoming unified, pulling together. You know? And that pleasantness, that piti, that joy or rapture is the fruit of that. It's a beautiful arising. It's not dependent on external conditions. It's wholesome pleasure born of seclusion and investigation. You know, and I was talking to one person today, and they said they were using uh, just, just kind of dropping in the word joy to their practice, and it kind of touched that, that joy energy and kind of would bring it alive. Be sitting and they're just joy. 
Ah, there it is. So then after some time, organically, we start to notice that the pleasantness, the lightness, or the joy starts to morph into a, a kind of calmness. Maybe some of you have had that experience. A little tranquility. The next factor begins to show itself, that natural calm. And that can deepen. And sometimes it deepens so that the body gets so peaceful, the bell rings, you don't want to get up. And at this point, you're deepening into the next factor of awakening, samadhi. Or concentration. I don't like the word concentration. It, it doesn't translate well. Samadhi is the word. And samadhi has all these beautiful mental factors that arise together. Pickpockets have concentration. Great concentration. They know the right moment. They know how to do it. But that's not samadhi. There's these wholesome factors. I'll just... Uh, I'll just read you some of these factors that are in there. There's, of course, there's some virya, the nature of of a smooth endeavoring, supporting a calm steadfastness is how it's described. There's a wholesome desire, chanda, we've talked about. There's faith. Sadha. It's the nature of we start to have this faith in the practice. This beautiful thing is starting to happen to us. And and there's there's a little bit of faith that's happening in there. There's mindfulness. There's conscience. This is an interesting one. Uh, Hiri is the Pali word. It's, It's having conscientious scruples about misconduct. When we're in this state, these awakenings say, we can't hurt anybody. It just doesn't even... It's not anywhere near us. You know? And then there's moral shame. We think, oh, that must be a horrible thing. But it's, it's not. It's, it's that slight, wholesome dread about committing any misconduct. There's non-greed, which is a non-attachment in all its forms. We can let it be. There's non-hatred. You know, there's, there's no aversion in the mind. There's equanimity. There's an evenness. There's a lightness of an agility of heart and mind. There's a flexibility, an adaptability. Yeah. And there's what, what, what's called a proficiency of wholesome deeds. There's a kind of charitable sensibility. Some of you have reported... Oh, I have these. I, I have these ideas on how to help or how to be generous, or you know, this is part of these mental factors. So, rectitude of mind. The last one I'll talk about is a mind not swerving toward pretense or deceit. Rectitude of mind. You get the picture. Samadhi is this wholesome configuration. It's beautiful. These mental factors come up, they're impermanent, and then they dissolve. You know, and we practice. They're not a permanent thing. They're not enlightenment. But they come up at times and we, ah, look at that. And they ripen. This samadhi ripens into equanimity, upekka, the last of the awakening factors. It's not moving toward or away from any object. It's a balanced, peaceful heart-mind. It's not reactive. It's stable. Unmoved in the face of pleasure or pain. So equanimity is the culmination. So I, I want to kind of bring this to a close with a, with a little meditation tonight. But first I want you to stand up and shake your booty a little bit, stretch, 
move that body in whatever compassionate way it needs to be moved. Appreciate its very existence, even though it's a little cranky at times. Okay. Let's uh, let's sit down and we'll take a little take a little journey through these factors experientially. When you want to be in a comfortable sitting position, change your position as as needed, of course. So remembering that these energies are natural to us. So close your eyes. This is kind of a classic contemplation. We're going to settle in a little bit for just a few minutes. You might take some deep breaths. Bring in that oxygen. Feeling the aliveness in the body. Oh my gosh, it's still there. The classic contemplation model that the Buddha taught was that first you unify the heart and mind as best that you are able in a particular time. And then you aim that steady, more settled, unified heart-mind towards a phenomena. Spiritual issue, impermanence, factors of awakening, four noble truths. What is the nature of self? And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to settle in a little bit, and then we're going to aim this mind. I'm going to walk you through these factors. Simply meditate the way you are most comfortable. Settling in given the conditions of this body, mind, heart right now. Nice and easy. This is now a very familiar experience of sitting and bringing attention into this living, mysterious, magical body. And so becoming mindful once again of the energy in this body. Your mindfulness, we could call the glue factor of these awakening factors, allows you to directly experience the aliveness. You can aim your attention. The energetic power of being alive. Simply, gently aiming the heart-mind to the energetic experience of, of aliveness. Virya, one of the factors. It's always there. Where's the energy? Can we touch it? And with the arising of a little energy, with the support of mindfulness, 
Investigation can be energized. The, explore, the exploration of the Dhamma. Some, as, some aspect of creation can become interesting. So with the power of your mindfulness and your energy, bring your mind to impermanence. The very foundation of nature. The immutable law of nature. All conditioned phenomena arise and pass away. Nothing is static. Everything is in motion. You can feel this in your body. You can feel this around you in the room. You can feel this vibrancy, this motion, this impermanence in all of creation. Now for a moment, directing your power of investigation and differentiation to the nature of suffering. with the very nature of nature being continuous change, you know it is fruitless to grab and cling onto the pleasant. You also know that continually pushing away every little unpleasantness is exhausting and anxiety-producing. As you imagine, even grasping for something, you can begin to feel the tension. I want, I want, I want. You know that opposing the flow of nature creates suffering. And you know now You've learned and dedicated yourself that the reduction of suffering is through the training of the heart and mind to increasingly let be, let go, and to relax into this flow of nature. You know this. You have the power of differentiation, of investigation. Rest for a moment in the freedom of that understanding. Phenomena rising and passing. No need to grasp or push away. Simply allowing the dance of creation to dance its dance. Now allowing yourself a little more investigation into the selfless nature of this creation. Phenomena arising and passing. Thoughts, emotions, sensations, sounds. Everything arising and passing on its own according to conditions. What is knowing this? Is there a solid, permanent self knowing this? Or could it be just the arising and passing of a multitude of phenomena?
nothing to do or undo. And we can turn the power of differentiation now towards a refinement of our personal integrity. We can utilize our curiosity, our energy, our mindfulness, our wholesome desire to grow in wisdom and compassion to differentiate between thoughts, speech, and actions that lead to harmony and thoughts, speech, and actions that lead to harm. That power is within us. This is a continuous contemplation of a spiritual seeker. Aided by your mindfulness, investigation, differentiation, and energy. As a practitioner, you continually reflect on your personal integrity. And as you become more mindful of your thoughts, speech, and action, you're beginning to live with less and less regret or remorse. This is the path. the tremendous beauty and clarity of that, of that path, cultivates a heart-mind that abides more and more in joy and peace. And your good fortune of discovering these practices and practicing the Dharma, it can't help but open you to greater greater joy. Can you, can you begin right in this moment? Can you touch that kernel of joy? It's alive in you. Can you feel the joy of discovering and walking the path of the Buddha? Can you feel the joy of the possibilities? The possibilities of greater understanding, greater love and compassion in your life. The awakening factors of the energy, the ability to differentiate, to investigate, And the resulting joy are all natural in you. All supported by the mindfulness, awareness. And embedded in this joy, look again in this joy, is the seed of tranquility, of calm. This potential. Explore for just some moments now this, this calm or this potential for calm. And continue to practice now, to meditate. Experiencing the aliveness. Breathing in, you unify the energies of the heart and mind. Breathing out, you settle more deeply and release more holdings, more contractions. Through your diligent efforts, you are visited more and more by the beautiful mental factors of samadhi.
a growing alertness, restfulness, a restorative alert restfulness. It's available. And finally, there's an increasing confidence that grows that you can meet all the vicissitudes of life with a balanced and open heart. A quiet, humble, but powerful equanimity is your potential. The culminating factor of awakening. As you walk the path and joyfully apply yourself, the possibility does exist that whatever conditions arise in your life, you can meet them with courage, grace, and compassion. This is the real potential that every one of you have. To meet every condition of this life with supreme grace and equanimity. Every condition. So contemplating this broad spectrum of awakening factors, factors you were born with, the capacity to be mindful, awake to what it's happening, when it's happening, the the ever-present energy of your life force to apply to this investigation. Your differentiation, your capacity to differentiate to for what leads to harmony. The joy that comes with a life that is firmly on a path. The tranquility that naturally strengthens with a life well-lived and the deepening power of samadhi, the greater and greater unification of the heart and mind, allowing deep restorative rest and the power to penetrate the very nature of nature. And finally, the growing equanimity to be with whatever arises with balance and calm and a heart fully open. So this mysterious, unfathomable life. The interplay of this, whatever this life is, this heart, mind, body, allows for all possibilities. And if you take the time to cultivate your practice and to occasionally just reflect on these factors, Everything opens. So I thank you for your time and attention.